Hello, listener. This week on the podcast, we'll be doing a replay of one of my favorite episodes. People often ask me, Matt, what's your favorite quote? And that's a very, very difficult question for me to answer. That said, my mind always gravitates towards a quote that I released in an episode way back when we were in the single digits of episodes about Rappaport's rules. Anatole Rappaport, who you'll learn about today if you've never heard of him before, and again, if you've listened to that episode in the past, was a very interesting individual, a mathematical psychologist and famous for solving the prisoner's dilemma with one of the most simple and elegant algorithms ever created to do so. He gives us four rules, which are conveyed to us from the American philosopher Daniel Dennett, which should inform our approach to critical commentary. This is something that, admittedly, despite the fact that I released this episode on July 29th, 2020, still struggle with to this day. And perhaps you do too. Civil discourse, or rather, not-so-civil discourse, as it often is, is incredibly difficult to get a handle on. Rappaport's rules give us a guideline to approach these difficult conversations in a way that is beneficial to everyone. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. So without further ado, here's episode 9 on Anatole Rappaport. Today's episode, we'll hear from Anatole Rappaport on how to effectively and fairly criticize others. Anatole Rappaport is a member of the former Soviet Union, uh, was born in what's now the Ukraine in 1911, prior to World War I, and died after a long life in 2007. He witnessed both of the world wars, the first he witnessed from Europe itself as a child, and the second from the United States, where he served in the U.S. Army Air Corps, the precursor to the United States Air Force. He studied music in Chicago, got a Ph.D. in mathematics. He studied, a, he studied mathematical biology, which is basically the study of infectious disease spread, trying to determine how viruses and in other infectious diseases spread throughout populations. Uh, he moved to Canada in 1970. This was due to the war in, in Vietnam. Now, this was not to avoid service in the war, because remember, in 1970, he was 59 years old at this point. It was more of a physical relocation due to disagreement with the governing system under which he lived. So that's a summary of Rappaport's life. Probably most famous, what brought him onto the map as far as philosophical, as far as philosophy went, was his response to the famous Prisoner's Dilemma Challenge. Now, if you're not familiar with the Prisoner's Dilemma, I'll go ahead and summarize it for you here. Uh, but it's worth reading about as it's something that people look at for explanations of why people behave in the ways that they do. So essentially, the Prisoner's Dilemma is a representative example of, of how people, despite cooperative behavior leading to optimal outcomes that individualized selfish behaviors are often what is chosen despite the fact that it has an overall detrimental effect on the system as a whole. Now that being said, that's a little bit of a complex way of explaining it. So let me lay out the prisoner's dilemma for you. And if you choose to, you can pause and think about it briefly and think about how you might behave in that situation. And I'm pulling this from Investopedia online. You can Google it just as well. If you Google the prisoner's dilemma, you'll see a variety of links and explanations and videos and things like that. This one comes to us from Investopedia. So I'm just going to read directly from their website so that you can have a clear explanation of that. And then we'll talk a little bit about it in an analytical sense. The classic prisoner's dilemma goes like this. Two members of a gang of bank robbers, Dave and Henry, have been arrested and are being interrogated in separate rooms. The authorities 
have no other witnesses and can only prove the case against them if they can convince at least one of the robbers to betray his accomplice and testify to the crime. Each bank robber is faced with the choice to cooperate with his accomplice and remain silent, or to defect from the gang and testify for the prosecution. If they both cooperate and remain silent, then the authorities will only be able to convict them on a lesser charge of loitering, which means one year in jail each. One year for Dave, one year for Henry, equaling two total years jail time. If one testifies and the other does not, then the one who testifies will go free, and the other will get three years. Zero years for the one who defects, plus three years for the one convicted, equals three years total. However, if both testify against each other, each will get two years in jail for being partly responsible for the robbery. Two years for Dave, plus two years for Henry, equals four years total jail time. So that's the dilemma. To put yourself in Dave or Henry's shoes, it doesn't matter, their situations are identical at the start. And imagine that you are called in to testify against, or are being interrogated regarding a crime, and you have this kind of choice. And you see this if you've ever watched crime documentaries or movies or TV shows, fictionalized TV shows, you'll see that these are often the situations that potential criminals are put in, where they are separated from their accomplices, almost always, and are asked to testify. And they're told often that they'll receive a lesser sentence if they do testify against their alleged accomplice. So in this case specifically, both of them have an incentive to defect, right? If you each remain silent, if both Henry and Dave choose to remain silent and cooperate, each gets one year of time, so a total of two years. If one defects, then that person, by default, gets zero years. So they're incentivized to defect from the, from the gang to take the zero and put the three years onto the other, which, of course, some form of that is almost always what law enforcement will provide to someone in return for their testimony. There's some, you've heard the term immunity. I want immunity for my actions or in, that may or may not be involved in this in order to testify. And that's often what people will request when in police custody. And taken to the, the next level, if one of the prisoners defects and testifies against the other one, that leaves the other person sitting in the other room. They don't know that the other person has defected, but they know that if they remain silent and the other person defected against them, so if Henry is sitting in the room quiet by himself and Dave is in the other room and Henry suspects that Dave has defected and has testified against him, that means that Dave gets to go free and Henry will have to do three years of time. So Henry, with that in mind, is incentivized himself to defect from the gang, knowing that if he can't trust Dave and thinks that Dave has already testified against him, rather than him doing three years while Dave gets to go free, it would be better for him to defect as well and ensure that even if he has to go to jail, he will go for just two years, but that Dave will also go for two years. So in both instances, to remain silent or to defect, the incentive for both parties is to defect. And this is an example that theologians and philosophers use to talk about the misaligned incentives for certain behaviors. To provide an example of this in real life, think about our world as a whole. There are solid arguments to be made that it is worthwhile for us to take time and energy and reinvest it back into a communal pool of resources. This could be a garden, this could be national parks, this could be land reservations, etc., etc. It is in our best interest as a society, as a whole, to do that. Now, where the misalignment of incentives comes is that individually, it's beneficial for a person to be able to capitalize on 
that land. So there's a misalignment of incentives here. It is good for everyone to reserve spaces and hold things in reserve so as not to do unnecessary harm, to maintain natural beauty that can be enjoyed in a variety of ways. But at the individual level, there is an incentive to having access to those spaces, especially if those spaces are found to have lucrative resources available within their boundaries. And so this is an example of the prisoner's dilemma, where choice is between doing something that is individually beneficial versus something that is globally beneficial. Rappaport, coming back to him, was famous for his response to this dilemma. He essentially entered a challenge where he had to create a computer program that would make a decision on how to respond or how to play in this dilemma. And Rappaport's program was extremely simple and effective. He ended up winning the competition, and essentially the summary of the program was that it it began as a cooperative. So the assumption was that the other person, so in this case, if the computer program was playing as Dave, the assumption was that Henry was cooperative with him. So the assumption was that Henry chose to remain silent. And so the computer program chose to remain silent. And the game was run iteratively, so the dilemma was run over and over and over again. And so after the first round of cooperation, then the computer program would behave exactly as the opponent had in the previous round. So if you started off as Dave and assumed that Henry was cooperative and Henry was cooperative, then the next time the simulation was run, the computer program would begin as cooperative as well. Now, if the computer program in round one started off as cooperative and Henry turned out to be non-cooperative, meaning he defected and testified against Dave, then the next round, Dave's character run by the computer program would also start off with the default assumption of defecting and testifying against Henry. So in this way, as the program ran over and over and over again, it incentivized cooperation between the two. All of that is a very long background into Anatole Rappaport and how we get to the point where he has, I guess, any authority to be speaking on this, this complex topic that we have before us today. The idea behind today's quote, and it's, it's less a quote and more a set of, of rules. Um, you'll see them referred to as Rappaport's rules. They are essentially a framework for how to compose a successful critical commentary. I think this is an incredibly important conversation to have today, meaning this is an incredibly important set of rules that were they played out in the public in a more widespread way, we would see a much less combative and much more congenial set of disagreements between people. Because one of the things that you'll see as I read through these rules here in a moment is that the rules create a non-confrontational bed or foundation from which to build the rest of the discussion. And so this quote kind of comes to us in an odd way. It is not a direct quote. There is nowhere that you will go find in Rappaport's writing that I've been able to determine where you'll see these rules laid out in specific sequence and referred to as a specific set of rules under the pen of Rappaport. Now, that being said, there are individual pieces of these rules that you can go find or individual versions of each one of these rules that you can find throughout his writing, but none of them are summarized and compiled together all in one spot by him. So this quote is technically not a quote. It is a compilation, a summary, and a synthesis that comes to us from American philosopher Daniel Dennett. And I won't go into his background, but he and his work are both fascinating. And he, as a friend of Rappaport's over the years, compiled these from conversations he and Rappaport had and readings from Rappaport's work, and he rightly attributes them to Rappaport. He doesn't try to claim credit for himself. 
Dr. Dennett gives Rappaport the credit for these rules, even though, again, they are never actually compiled and written down by Rappaport in sequence in any specific work of his. So here are Rappaport's rules, and I'll go through them one at a time, and then I'll discuss them individually after the fact. Rule number one, you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. Number two, you should list any points of agreement, especially if they are not matters of general or widespread agreement. Number three, you should mention anything you have learned from your target. Number four, only then are you permitted to say so much as a word of rebuttal or criticism. Now, if you're like me, when you heard those four rules laid out, you thought to yourself a couple of things. First, man, wouldn't it be nice if people did that? Every time I see an argument online, every time I see a skirmish on Facebook or any other platform, or even over your family Thanksgiving table or around the Christmas tree at Christmas time, you very rarely see these rules, if ever. I'd be astonished. I don't think I've ever seen these rules played out in their entirety anywhere. And so the first thought was, man, wouldn't it be nice if people did do that? And the second thought is, well, that just sounds exhausting. And that's, I think, why we don't see this so much. It is much, much easier in debate and in conversation and in argument to immediately jump to conclusions to immediately start attacking the other person's position. And if you're like me, you've probably done this before. There are times where you're listening to someone present an opinion or present a point of view on a challenging topic, and you think to yourself, as they're speaking, I can't wait for them to stop talking because I'm going to blast this argument right out of the water. That's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. I can't believe this moron is saying this. And only when it becomes my turn will this person realize the error in their ways of presenting such an egregiously silly position to me. And yet Rappaport says don't do that. He says that the very first thing you should do is attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. How many of us can do that? How many of us have done that? It's an incredibly difficult thing to do. So let's, for the sake of analysis, each in our own minds, take a moment and think of your most deeply held and triggering issue. This could be abortion. This could be climate change. This could be factory farming, atheism, religion, etc., etc., etc. Something that really gets your blood boiling. That thing that, if it was on the list of what I just mentioned, as soon as I said that specific topic, you immediately started to feel that little tingle that tells you that this is something that you're passionate about. Whatever that thing is, think of that topic. It doesn't have to be from a specific person, although if there's a person on the other side of this in your mind, it may make it easier to walk through these steps. But think of it in terms of just the topic as a whole, if nothing else. Pick a topic and, and, and keep it captured in the back of your mind. Ask yourself, on the topic in question, can you re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. Now, let's say... And I'll try to jump back and forth uh, between sides here. But if you're an American citizen or you keep track of American politics, you know that we have a very polarized left versus right, conservative versus liberal, Democrat versus Republican system. And it leads to a lot of very impassioned beliefs. And a lot of times where these beliefs become manifest is at gatherings of family or friends. So let's put ourselves at the Thanksgiving table in 2020 surrounded by family, and everyone has that relative that belongs to the other side. If you are passionate on your side, you almost inevitably have a family member who is the complete opposite. So ask yourself, the last time you debated with this person or argued with this person, 
did you do exactly what Rappaport says in rule number one to re-express your target's position and to do so in such a way that is kind and generous? Probably not. I bet if you were to go look at any comment thread below a YouTube video or a Facebook post or a Twitter message that the first thing you would see from a respondent is not. So let me see if I understand this correctly. You're saying on and on and on. Now, this brings us to an important point of debate, and that's logical fallacies. And there are many, many of these. I find them to be fascinating. I'm as guilty of them as anyone in conversation, but I find them to be fascinating. And it's interesting, once you are familiar with logical fallacies, to overlay that logical fallacy structure onto every discussion and debate that you see. And note the logical fallacies that people employ in an attempt to gain an advantage in that discussion or that debate. And the one that I want to focus on here, there are really two, and they are counter to one another. They are polar opposites of one another. And that is the idea of straw manning, an argument. Now, a strongman argument is, by definition, an exaggeration or misrepresentation or just a complete fabrication of someone's argument such that it is easier to discredit or debunk that opinion. Now, I'll give you an example. Let's say that someone is advocating for defunding the military to an extent, not entirely, but reducing the budget of the military and applying that money elsewhere. A straw man argument to that would be, instead of arguing against simply defunding or reducing the budget of the military, to turn around and say, well, I guess I didn't realize how much you hated this country such that you would advocate for cutting the military budget and putting us in harm's way. So we've taken the argument, which is a reasonable one, reducing the military budget and reallocating those dollars elsewhere, and we've turned it into, I love America and you hate America. And you see that all the time. You can probably go to your Facebook feed or to a YouTube video and see those types of comments from people. And that's a straw man argument. It creates a weakened version or a misrepresentation of an argument in a weakened state such that it is much easier to uh, argue against it. It's one of the most common and most often seen logical fallacies that's applied. And it plays directly into rule number one, right? And it's directly counter to rule number one. Nobody who has had their argument straw manned in front of them is likely to turn around and say, thanks, I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. The counter to that, the polar opposite of straw manning, is what's called steel manning. And steel manning is attempting to create the strongest version of the argument that you're presented, and then arguing your point in opposition to that. Going back to our example about cutting the military budget and reallocating those dollars elsewhere, you might, if somebody presented you with that argument, even if you disagreed with it, if you were following Rappaport's first rule, you would turn around and say, okay, so you are advocating for the selective defunding of programs within the military and the reallocation of those dollars to other programs that may benefit such that the distribution of funds is more fairly applied across the board. Now, a person may turn and say, yes, that's exactly what I'm advocating for. If you've done that, you've steel-manned the argument, and you've adhered to Rappaport's rule number one. So in a way, Rappaport's rule number one is essentially is him advocating for steel-manning your opponent's argument. Don't fight the weakened version. Don't fight your misinterpretation. Argue against the strongest version of your opponent's position that you can muster. On to rule number two. You should list any points of agreement, especially if they are not matters of general or widespread agreement. 
Again, keeping with our cutting the budget of the military and reapplying those dollars elsewhere. You may be able to argue perhaps the person is advocating for reapplying those dollars elsewhere to programs that you don't necessarily agree with, but you don't necessarily disagree with the idea of cutting the military budget. Perhaps you agree that too much money is spent on the military. And that is a point of agreement that you have with the person. So not only have you presented the argument fairly because you followed rule number one, you're now going to point out to the person that you disagree with that you do agree that defunding the military is a way to increase the funding to other programs, but not necessarily with the programs that they may be advocating for. Now, again, based on rule number four, which we'll get to in a moment, you're not allowed to say that second part. So all you're going to say in rule number two is, I agree that defunding the military would allow, would free up some money that could be applied to other social programs and other departments where it may be more beneficial and more efficiently and effectively used. Great. You've now fulfilled rule number two. Let's move on to rule number three. Number three, you should mention anything you have learned from your target. Let's say your target, in this case, informed you that the military in your country, whether it's, let's say it's the United States, because that's the one with which I'm most familiar, the military, the Department of Defense in my country, receives three quarters of a trillion dollars every year. And I'm making this next part up because I don't know. But that accounts for 11% of the United States GDP in any given year. And then they tell you that not only that, but that represents a much larger percentage of any other country's GDP by a long shot. And you didn't know that. So based on rule number three, you will then mention to your opponent, I did not actually know that the United States used such, spent such a high percentage of its GDP on the military and that that is significantly more than any other country in the world spends of its GDP on their military. So in a way, what you're doing here, rules one through three, the whole purpose of those, these rules is to set a framework of congenial discussion. The first rule, presenting your opponent's argument in a fair and strong representation develops a, a sense of goodwill. The second one, everybody likes to be agreed with. So mentioning the things that you do agree with that your opponent has mentioned builds additional goodwill. And then the third one, everybody likes to feel as if they have some piece of knowledge that maybe somebody else doesn't have. So by recognizing that you learned something from your opponent, you're building further goodwill. So you've spent three rules of Rappaport's four rules developing a good rapport with your opponent. And this can be exceptionally hard to do. And I know that. It's exceptionally hard for me to do as well when people touch on issues that I find to be challenging. It's exceptionally hard to be that generous with both your time and attention. And if you think in terms of what you see on a daily basis, you can understand why it's so challenging. It's so tempting to lean into an argument and come out with come out with a baseball bat and, it, and it just start swinging. And maybe you have a funny meme that you're going to respond with, or maybe you have some sarcastic response, and it's just a real zinger. To put that on hold and say, wait, first I have to restate my, op my opponent's position in a generous way. Second, point out anything that I agree with them about. And third, tell them anything that they taught me that I didn't already know, meaning force me to take a humble position before I can ever drop that super funny meme or give that sarcastic response. And then in rule number four, only after you've completed rules one through three, are you permitted to so much as utter a word of rebuttal or criticism. What a great world it would be that if we lived in one in which that was the norm. Conversations would take time. Conversations would take effort. The flippant responses that you see so much nowadays would not be ever present. It would be refreshing in its own way. 
but it's hard. It takes effort. It takes deliberate practice. Even having read this quote or set of rules over and over and over again, I still have not internalized this to the point that it is automatic. It is still exceptionally simple and, and, and relatively low mental bandwidth to jump in and just start swinging. It doesn't require a whole lot of thought and effort. And to his credit, Daniel Dennett, who, I, again, I said is the one who compiled these and attributed them to Rappaport from conversations and other readings that he did, even said, this is incredibly hard to do, especially with some of the very worst opinions that exist in the world. And that's the trap with, with this set of rules, is that there are times where opinions are so damaging, so dangerous, so off base, that going through rules one through three feels like you are lending a certain amount of credibility to something to which no credibility should be lent. In those cases, it is very tempting, and sometimes Dennett, I think, would argue, even the correct thing to do, to skip directly to the criticism and rebuttal of those opinions. Now, that opinion may be related to... It may not be appropriate to apply Rappaport's rules to something like the mass extermination of Jews being okay as... Hitler and others advocated in World War II. If you were presented with that argument today from someone, you would not necessarily be incorrect in not following Rappaport's rules one through three. Now, you may wish to do so as practice for yourself. You may wish to do so as in order to execute a calming effect on you before you dive right into your rebuttal. But in that case, Dennett and possibly Rappaport himself, where he's still alive, would argue that you're actually better off at that point, jumping directly to rule number four and starting in with your rebuttal and your criticism, because that point of argument is so far off that it is not even worth giving any type of validity to by trying to restate it fairly and kindly and generously, and then listing the things that you agree with about it, and then listing the things that you learned from that person about it. There may just not be any value to that. Now, the counter to this is you have to be very careful as the arguer, I have to be very careful as the arguer, not to group opinions that I don't like into this category just because I don't like them. They need to be strongly and widely seen to be invalid before you can just skip those first three rules, ideally. It's very easy to equate an opinion that is simply a matter of discourse and an unresolved issue today, example, uh, defunding the military and, and reallocating some of that money to other departments and programs. That is a perfectly reasonable debate to be having. It would be wrong of me for me to take a extermination of the Jews view of that argument about defunding the military and apply it in this sense and skip directly over rules one through three and jump directly to rebuttal and criticism. So that's where we have to be careful. Most arguments, however, do warrant a careful consideration of the rules presented by Rappaport. So in closing, these rules provide a framework that we can utilize when we discuss challenging topics with other people. Give it a try. I'd love to hear your experiences. Have you done this in the past? Are you willing to try this? I would love to hear how you attempted to successfully or not apply these rules to discourse that you may have with a spouse, a family member, a coworker, a friend. And I'd love to hear your feedback on if you think Rappaport was on point. Is this fair? Is this the way that things should be done? Would you add anything to this set of rules? Would you take anything away from this set of rules? And how, most importantly, how did this change the way that you approached that conversation? 
knowing that you were going to go through rules one through three, how did it change the way that you thought of the person with whom you were interacting? How did it change the way you presented your opinions to that person? And again, I'd love to hear the result. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.